Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Delirium, the syndrome of acute brain dysfunction caused by an underlying medical illness or toxic exposure, occurs in up to 87% of intensive care unit, or ICU, patients. While antipsychotics are often used to treat delirium symptoms such as agitation, hallucinations, paranoia, and sleep disturbances, data on the impact of antipsychotics on ICU delirium are mixed. This retrospective study compared outcomes of critically ill, delirious patients treated with early antipsychotics administered within 48 hours of altered mental status, late antipsychotics administered after more than 48 hours of altered mental status, or no antipsychotics. The primary outcomes of interest were delirium coma-free hours and likelihood of delirium coma resolution within a predefined 10-day surveillance period. No association between antipsychotic use and duration of delirium or mechanical ventilation was found. Antipsychotic-related adverse events were minimal, with only one observed case of extrapyramidal symptoms and no episodes of torsades de pointe. An association was observed between late antipsychotic exposure and reduced 10-day mortality. When comatose patients were excluded, this effect was no longer observed, although power was limited. The authors conclude that antipsychotics for ICU delirium are associated with few adverse events. No association was found between antipsychotic administration and the resolution of altered mental status or likelihood of extubation. This work was supported by an internal hospital innovation grant the Brigham Care Redesign Incubator and Startup Program. What are the most common patient-reported factors that influence medication treatment decisions among individuals with depression? This article reports the result of an online survey conducted by the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance asking participants with bipolar and unipolar depression about factors that influence treatment decisions. In total, 896 participants completed the survey. 50% had unipolar depression and 50% had bipolar depression. The majority of respondents reported several previous medication trials. The most frequently reported factors impacting treatment decisions were side effects, doctor recommendations, costs, and how quickly the treatment will begin to work. The most common reason for changing treatments was ineffectiveness in the unipolar depression group and side effects in the bipolar depression group. Weight gain was the side effect that most commonly led respondents to discontinue a medication. The most common concern for changing medications was the potential for new side effects. Doctor recommendations were more likely to be influential for those taking medications compared to those who were not. Conversely, costs and impact on pregnancy and lactation were more likely to impact treatment decisions in participants not currently taking medications. Current medication use was associated with increased rates of perceived treatment effectiveness. In summary, side effects, doctor recommendations, cost, and rapidity of antidepressant effects were determined to be particularly important factors in making treatment decisions. 
Side effects and ineffectiveness were the most common reasons for discontinuing a medication and were also the primary concerns when making treatment changes. These findings highlight the importance of patient-centered factors in adjudicating treatment decisions. This study was conducted with support from Alchemies. Metabolic syndrome is highly prevalent in patients with bipolar disorder. The purpose of this study was to characterize the prevalence of metabolic syndrome among Dutch patients with bipolar disorder, identify factors associated with metabolic syndrome, and estimate the rate of pharmacologic treatment of the disorder in this population. A cross-sectional analysis of medical records of adult patients with bipolar disorder receiving psychotropic drug treatment was performed in a Dutch psychiatric outpatient setting. Metabolic syndrome was determined according to National Cholesterol Education Program Adult Treatment Panel 3 adapted criteria. The prevalence of metabolic syndrome in the sample of 71 patients was 42.3%. Multivariate analysis showed sex and body mass index were independently associated with metabolic syndrome. Men had an almost eightfold higher risk of metabolic syndrome than women and the risk increased by 40% with every point of BMI increase. Of the patients with hyperglycemia, hypercholesteremia, and hypertension, 81%, 71%, and 65% respectively did not receive drug treatment for these conditions. Metabolic syndrome has a high prevalence rate in patients with bipolar disorder, and its symptoms are considerably undertreated. Clinicians treating patients with bipolar disorder should be alert for the elevated risk of cardiovascular disease and apply regular monitoring and more aggressive treatment of metabolic syndrome. The study was funded through Psych-Q Department of Mood Disorders at the Mondrian Institute of Mental Health. No external funding agencies were involved. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder responds very well to treatment with stimulant medications. But with so many different options, it can be difficult to choose the right treatment for each patient. The authors of this month's continuing medical education offering dove in and examined what makes each stimulant formulation unique. They examined the types of formulations that currently exist, how long it takes for each medication to start working, and how long each medication works. They produced this review for clinicians to use as a guide to quickly compare each stimulant formulation. Patients have unique preferences, and this comprehensive guide should make it simpler for clinicians to choose the best treatment for each of their patients. Brain zaps are unpleasant sensations felt in the brain by some people who stop taking antidepressants. Very little is known about what causes these sensations or how they can be prevented or treated. People who experience brain zaps often search lay internet sites for information. One such site, Mental Health Daily, has a dedicated bulletin board where people are invited to post their experiences with antidepressant discontinuation. The authors of this article collected and examined almost 600 of such posts made on that website between the end of 2015 and the middle of 2017. Some of the findings were not surprising. For example, that several antidepressants were more or less likely to cause brain zaps compared to how frequently they are prescribed. Some findings were unexpected. 
notably reports of brain zaps being associated with eye movements. And some findings were disappointing and sobering, specifically the clear lack of available treatments, the despair reflected in many of the posts about the adverse impact of these symptoms on people's lives, and the palpable negative attitude this situation engenders in some segments of the general public towards the medical, and specifically, the psychiatric professions. The authors hope that this work revives interest among psychiatrists in studying this topic with the goal of better prevention and treatment. Trichotillomania is a disorder characterized by recurrent episodes of hair pulling that affects a growing and diverse patient population. The behavior is a result of conscious or unconscious stimuli aimed at alleviating stress. Trichotillomania can be diagnosed typically by a psychiatrist or dermatologist with various assessment tools and scales. Although researchers continue to discover new pharmacologic regimens and non-pharmacologic therapies, there is no single effective FDA-approved option available for patients. Treatment with the least occurrence of relapse consists of a combination of pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options and calls for the involvement of a multidisciplinary team along with family members and friends. This review provides an analysis of the current treatment modalities in the management of trichotillomania and highlights the need for further epidemiologic, genetic neuroimaging, and dietary research to better understand the complicated nature of this disorder. Hypercalcemia is a relatively common clinical entity, and risk factors for its development include sporadic and inherited conditions, renal failure, and various medications. Hypercalcemia has been associated with psychiatric symptoms, and the psychopathology usually emerges after a prolonged period of subclinical hypercalcemia. The objective of this article is to help clinicians make an accurate diagnosis by considering hypercalcemia as a potential cause of psychosis. A patient case is presented along with a review of the literature dissecting the association between calcium and psychiatric symptoms. Clinical implications and suggestions for management of hypercalcemia and psychosis in the setting of primary hyperparathyroidism are provided. Have you ever wondered whether physicians have the right to restrict patients' behavior when they are voluntary inpatients? As a healthcare provider, have you been afraid to be flexible when enforcing rules imposed upon patients for fear of liability if a bad outcome was to arise? If you have, the case vignette and discussion presented in this issue's rounds in the general hospital should prove useful. The authors point out that rules and limitations on behaviors are often necessary for medical and surgical inpatients whose behavior, when unsupervised, increases their risk of an adverse event. Providers should approach the topic of setting limits with compassion, explaining the rationale behind provider-enforced rules. Go to primarycarecompanion.com to find out more about this important topic. The rate of suicidal ideation in youth is around 20%. Suicide attempts have reached 9%, and completed suicides account for almost 10% of all deaths among adolescents and young adults around the world, making suicide the third leading single cause of death in this population. 
In fact, in several countries, the rate of suicide in children has gradually increased since the turn of our century. And the decreasing age at onset of self-harm and increasingly lethal methods indicate the need for targeted interventions in key transition stages for young people. For these reasons, we've just released our newest curated collection, Unmasking Suicide in Youths. Dr. Philip Corte, editor of the journal Clinical Psychiatry's Focus on Suicide Special Section, further elaborates in his pointed introduction on the need for readers to learn more about the high risk of suicide among our young people. At nearly 200 pages, the collection contains 16 articles from the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders and the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry and costs only $75. To find the collection, go to psychiatrist.com and enter the keyword suicide. You can also find it on our journal homepages. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to find numerous case reports on a variety of topics. You can also browse interactive articles from our CME Institute. We update our website weekly with new postings, so there is always something new to explore. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.